Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm August Baker, and today we're speaking with Dr. William R. Miller. Many of you know who Dr. Miller is. If you don't, I would say that if there were a Nobel Prize for clinical psychology, he would have won it. (laughs) This is the Miller of Miller and Rolnick and motivational interviewing, um, which uh, Dr. Miller started with um, when he was researching and treating alcohol use, expanded, uh, this expanded into drug use, um, behavioral addictions like gambling, and took off from there. Healthcare, diabetes, hypertension, then into psychotherapy, social work, corrections, you name it, education, sports, management, and it's now being taught and practiced in at least 60 languages on six continents and studied in over 1,600 clinical trials. Um, we're not going to talk about uh, that Miller and Rolnick book. Uh, today, we're talking about a new book that Dr. Miller has published in 2022. It's called On Second Thought, How Ambivalence Shapes your life. Dr. Miller is the Emeritus Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. Welcome, Dr. Miller. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. So ambivalence. What is ambivalence to start off? Well, it's being drawn in different directions simultaneously. It's this feeling I've I want it and I don't want it at the same time. It's a, it's a normal, actually daily human experience. Um, and it seems to be pretty common to human nature because uh, this idea crosses cultures rather well. Um, ironically, no one was ambivalent before 1910 because that's when the term was invented uh, by Eugene Bloiler and popularized by Freud. And, before that, there just didn't seem to be this idea of simultaneously being conflicted and pulled in two different directions. Um, I'm, I'm sure people were ambivalent before that, but we just didn't have that word in our language. Yeah, exactly. I think the same thing is true with the word empathy, also a fairly recent word. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't looked that up. Yeah. Um, so, right. So I think that that's interesting, you know, and, and one of the things we're talking about, of course, uh, is making choices. And on the one hand, 
this, on the other hand, that actually one of your definitions of ambivalence that I liked was on the one hand and on the other hand, mm-hmm. an octopus is doomed to multivalence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good way to remember it. Uh-huh. So we're talking about making decisions, but we're also talking about um, having different emotions at the same time. And it's a very rich part of human experience. I mean, sometimes people think of ambivalence as a problem. Uh, I just think of it as part of human nature and even a virtue. And uh, it's like it's like the dissonance in music. You know? mm. uh, it just gives some richness to it. Mm-hmm. I and yet we, I, so you know, you cover uh, one of the things you cover late in the book is um, binary thinking. And it occurs to me that we kind of, in talking to each other, we 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 expect each other to be binary. So, uh, for example, when you said that to me, that was aggressive. Uh, no, I didn't intend to be aggressive. Well, if you really looked at all your emotions, are you sure there's not any bit of aggression in there? Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Well, we get you take you get a political survey, and it says, "Do you favor or not favor?" Uh, and you don't have the option of, "Well, you know, in some ways I favor, and in some ways I don't." Right. Uh, you're expected to choose binary. Yeah. Right. So I thought one of the great, and you know, I was uh, one of the great things about this book is it's got a lot of experiment, really interesting experimental uh, results that I didn't had not heard of before. Um. And it's also, um, but it's also has, or, and it also has some really personal, uh, some of your own personal experiences. One of them, I actually work with um, parents of children with, um, uh, you might say, or neuro, neuroatypical children. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about, how to view as a parent, how to view uh, a child, uh, how, how to, how to, how to hold at one time, both all parts of what is happening with a child. Yes. Yeah. It's, I, I think I use the terms hope and despair and, and you don't have to choose between those. I mean, there are certainly times, especially difficult times as a parent, when you feel both of those things, you you feel some desperation and despair about what's happening. And you also retain some hope that things will, will be better. And it's not like one or the other of those is the truth. They're both the truth and you can hold them simultaneously. You can hold them together. And we, we have that rich capability as human beings. You, it, it doesn't have to be either, or it, it can be both. And yes. And yeah. Right. And it, it, but that doesn't come naturally. Right. I mean, I, I think in, in, in uh, your book, you talk about how we love to take sides. We love to um, go one from one side to the other. It may be natural that we have both feelings, but it's not natural to hold them both in in my my sense. Go ahead. Well, I just, there are individual differences here. I think it, it comes easier to some people than others. Some people just have much more tolerance for, um, ambiguity and ambivalence and don't feel like they have to decide. Uh, others of us, and I, I lean on this side of things, just want to make a decision and get on with it. You know, and even if it wasn't the best decision, you know, I got it decided and I moved on. 
And uh, I, I'm married to a woman who is kind of the opposite on that dimension, which is a good thing. I mean, we, we balance each other out. Um, so I, you know, I can make decisions pretty well when it's a major decision, like you're going to buy a house and so forth. It's, it's often wise to have someone say, well, why don't we consider some other options here before we go ahead? So it's that balance. Uh, and, and some of us are just much more comfortable with, um, tolerating really ambivalence and ambiguity than other people are. Right. I, and that reminds me of another, you use the words extroversion and introversion in the book in a way that I hadn't heard of before, mm-hmm. uh, a, a more general usage of it in terms of how one goes about making decisions. Yeah, that was out of Carl Jung. Yeah. Um, people often think of uh, extroversion uh, as, as being outgoing and introversion is shyness, but that's, there's a much bigger sense of that. And the the introverted people, and I'm one of those, tend to mull things over internally and work on it for a while and maybe not even say anything about it until you've kind of reached a resolution or a conclusion. So you'd be quietly ambivalent about things. Uh, extroverted people, and I'm married to one of those, it's helpful in, in making decisions to talk it through with people. And you hear yourself saying it out loud and, and it, it just helps you work it through. Right. And, and those kinds of people can misunderstand each other, particularly around the issue of how final what I just said is. Mm. Uh, if an introvert says something uh, like I want a divorce, you know, I mean, I really have been thinking about it for a long time and working on it, processing it. An extroverted might be just be kind of trying it out as one possibility. Uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about this and see where it goes. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty easy to misunderstand each other around those kinds of personality differences. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I, um, one of the things that um, you talk about is also just in general, ambivalence coming from sources of ambivalence coming from within yourself and then also uh, coming socially. Mm-hmm. And um, let, let's talk about the, uh, the social part. This is a, a, now this part is, it will be familiar to people who are familiar with MI. Um, you have someone who is ambivalent and uh, so what you should do, of course, is persuade them, right? Tell them all the reasons that, that, that are on your side. That's what your gut wants to do. That, that's kind of, even professional helpers, we go into this profession because we want to help. Uh, and there's just something that you want to convince, you want to persuade, you want to encourage the person. And with an ambivalent person, that's actually the wrong thing to do. Um, if you if you think about ambivalence as having both arguments within you, you know, I want it and I don't want it. And this is classic in addictions. You know, I mean, think of a, think of a smoker. You know, I mean, what what smoker these days doesn't know they're taking a chance with their life of having a pretty ugly death and so on. Uh, and at the same time, they enjoy what they're doing. You know, and they feel both things. You know, if I champion quitting smoking. If I, if I tell them what they already know, 
which is the ways in which smoking is, is not good for them, their natural response is to defend it. You know? And then if I tell them they really ought to quit smoking, their natural response is to say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And what you're doing is acting out the person's ambivalence, but doing it unfortunately in the wrong way, because <laughs> I, as a helper, am taking all the good lines, all the, all the pro-change lines and causing the person to argue against change and say, no, it's not really that, it's not a serious problem. I don't want to do that. It's not, you know, it's just not, not where I am right now. You know? right. And that's not neutral. As people hear themselves say those things, they get more committed to them. Uh, and so what you're doing actually is the reverse of, of what you hope to accomplish because you're causing the person to argue more and more for not changing for continuing to do what it is that they're doing now. Right. Uh, and that's an important realization that, that does lie at the heart of motivational interviewing. Right. Yes. Stunningly helpful. Um, I, uh, and, and, in in this book, um, you go into, uh, you think a lot about how that ties in with, uh, in the social sphere with authority and hierarchies and um, you you talk about this concept of reactance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the normal reaction to being given unsolicited advice is either not to do it or to do the opposite. <laughs> now, that's not what you hope for when you're giving somebody advice, of course. If someone asks you for advice, that's a little different situation. But but in the kind of unwelcome or, or you know, unrequested advice, you can expect the normal response will be to not do it, at least, if not to do the opposite. Now, why is that? Uh, well, I, I cite some evolutionary research uh, from this uh, psychologist in Australia who, who talks about dominance hierarchies in the animal kingdom. And wolves and lions and so sort have, of, you know, have really worked out well how you decide who's in charge, right? Um, and you can become the alpha animal uh, if, if you have this stuff for it. Fortunately, that doesn't mean you have to kill all the other animals. <laughs> that would not be good for survival. And so there, there's a way of yielding. With wolves, I use the example. With wolves, what the wolf does when it's losing is, is put its head up and open its throat, which means that the alpha wolf could tear its throat out. But it doesn't. That's the end of the fight right there. Uh, so they both survive and they, and they both know who's in charge. Now, when somebody's giving you advice that you haven't asked for, they're kind of assuming a dominant position. They're kind of taking a one-up position, conscious of it or not. You know? And if, if you follow that advice, if you obey the advice, you're accepting a kind of one-down position. That just doesn't feel right to human beings most of the time. You can agree to a situation like you, you enroll in the military where you know that's going to be the case. Right. Uh, but for most people who have you know, freedom of choice, they just mm-hmm. don't like feeling one down. Right. And, and so what you want to do is to assert your freedom and say, no, I don't have to do that. You know, that's, that's, I'm not going there. And that's that kind of underlying motivation uh, underneath psychological reactance, which is with, if it feels like I'm being controlled, manipulated, uh, you know, bossed around, dominated. I'm going to do something to push back against that and say no. 
I'm, I'm in charge here. Right. Now in healthcare, that's a problem because you go into the doctor's office, you're in your underwear, the doctor's wearing a white coat, you know, the authority is clearly there, gives you healthcare advice. Uh, and then you go home and you get to decide whether you're going to do it or not. And most <laughs> people don't follow healthcare advice. Right. Yeah. We get uh, the example of the going to the dentist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, we have that kind of, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do feeling. It may not right. even be conscious, but it's there, you know? And so w- when you're dealing with something about which people are ambivalent and that's uh, most of the time, actually, uh, to try to persuade, to try to convince, to try to make the person do it is a losing battle. You cannot make people change. And what a uh, concept for parenting also. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. I thought one of the interesting things you said uh, was persuasion and advice are often attempts to convince from the Latin root vincere to defeat conquer or overcome yeah so it doesn't feel good on the on the receiving end right. <laughs> that's right so to to bring up uh, this is not in your book so i apologize but i i just thought about the vaccines oh sure right um is that what you think about when you see i mean people just don't want on on either side people don't want to be told what to do well it's gotten even more complex than that actually it's got gotten polarized uh i've said in the book one thing that kind of amplifies uh response to ambivalence is if you identify that is not taking an advice not taking a vaccine it's not just an opinion of mine it's who i am that's me you know it's or it's or, or or taking the vaccine is who I am. I mean, that's me. Uh, and so to have that question, to, to get into a dialogue about that, you're really talking about your worth as a person. Now, that's, that's a big jump. Uh, and that's kind of where many of us are with vaccines, I think, that this is not, only, not just my opinion. This is more than my opinion. This, this is my tribe you know this is, yes exactly this is who, this is who i am yeah. this is my people yeah right mm-hmm. i get i i get that sense um and um one of the uh things i re- realized while reading your book was um so you're in your book you're trying to persuade people right and i i find myself in the one sense i I bought the book. I'm interested in it. And so it's kind of like, it's not really unsolicited advice, but I even felt myself trying to think about, well, is this right? Is that, is that not right? You know, always reading it with a critical, the critical. Yeah. No, that's my, that's my intention to, (laughs) to, to give you information with which you can make better decisions. Right. And not get trapped by by this, uh, you know, dynamic of, well, this is me, or, you know, I, I can't do that or whatever, to understand that when someone's trying to persuade you that you're going to naturally want to not do it, but that doesn't mean you have to not do it. You know? Right. The, the, the irony is, is that we, we don't take advice, even if we agree with it. Right. Yes. It's that, it's that powerful. Yes. 
Now, after the uh, you're talking about the social aspect, you um, chapter six, you you go into um, the depths, you might say, and distinguish, make a distinguish between horizontal and vertical ambivalence. Yes, yes. Because part of part of your ambivalence can be unconscious. You're not aware of half of your ambivalence, essentially. So in your conscious mind, you're, you're thinking one way about things. But there's another really significant part of you that is not so sure or even takes the opposite kind of position. Now, that's a tricky one. And you find yourself saying, why did I do that? You know, I don't. I don't understand what, you know, I, I really got caught up in this and I don't get what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, part of it can be this unconscious desire to move in a different direction. I think an example I use is the kind of people that you get attracted to, romantically attracted to. And I certainly have treated people who, unfortunately, were just wired to be attracted to exactly the wrong kind of person for them, often trying to undo some childhood learning you know mm-hmm. so, um i i think i gave two examples of that but but one was one was a woman who kept being just falling madly in love with these guys who were pretty distant and not very feeling and you know pretty tightly controlled right. with the sense that deep inside there there's a teddy bear and i want to find that teddy bear and 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 so she just I mean, chemically drawn to these kinds of guys. Of course, what happens is as they get in a relationship, she wants that teddy bear and begins to demand more and more for him to be feeling and expressive. And when you demand that of somebody who's uncomfortable with it, they pull away. Mm, right. Then she, then she gets angry, you know, and, and it, it and really angry. She ended up in the ER and uh, or, yes, or in handcuffs. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah yes. Yeah. You, you can, it can end in violence even, you know, it just occurred to me one day to say, tell me about your father. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, dad never, he never told us he loved us. You know, we, we kind of knew he did, but, and, and then it just like dawned on her. Oh my God, I've been trying to get my, my father to love me <laughs> and, and choosing guys who are uncomfortable with feelings and uncomfortable with expressing emotion and love to try to make them love me, which I didn't get from my father. That was all unconscious for a long time. Uh, and I, I won't say that making it conscious solved the problems necessarily. Right. But nonetheless, she now understood better what she was doing and could try something different. Like how about dating guys who are warm and interesting and feeling and, and, you know, and care about you, you know? Right. So that's just one example, but but she was so puzzled by why relationship after relationship after relationship with what seemed to her to be very different people would always crash in the same way. Right. Yeah. So in those situations, there probably is an unconscious component working against the conscious component. And, and those are difficult, puzzling ones. Right. And this was one of the cases where you were, you were very uh, personal uh, and talking about your your own ambivalence about having um, children, having children. Yeah. And, and that um, now some people, the therapeutic encounter really helps. It seems like for you, it was um, not something that 
you, it was a realization that you came to on your own without talking to a therapist necessarily. Well, not exactly. I mean, I've, I've been in men's groups for decades. Um, ah. so, so these are, these are guys that get together and we just talk to each other about our lives. We're not talking about sports and stuff. We're saying, what's going on in your life right now? Um, and so, although they're not trained therapists, nonetheless, guys in this kind of group know me pretty well. And when something new comes into my life, they kind of understand the history of it also. And what a gift that is, you know? So the, my first, the, I mean, the situation was my, my cover story was that I didn't really want to have kids. I just, I just didn't have those feelings. I would, you know, wasn't that interested in having children. Uh, and, and I went back to a men's group that I'd been part of seven years before and was talking about this. And the guy next to me in whose house we were meeting said, are you still dealing with that? And I said, yeah, I just, you know, I just don't have any particular feelings about kids. And he said, bullshit. I said, this was a, you know, kind of kind, warm guy. I said, wait, what? I said, when you came in here tonight, what'd you do? I said, well, I, um, I talked to your kids and sat on the floor with them for a while. Uh-huh. He said, then what did you do? Uh, well, it was time for them to go to bed. And so I kind of tucked them in and told them the story and said, uh-huh. Yeah. Every time I see you in a room with adults and kids, you're on the floor with the kids. What's that about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I didn't in that moment understand what was going on. It, it was in a pretty dramatic moment. Um, when I got this, a download of memories from my father that I had not remembered consciously. Uh, my sister died when she was eight and I was 13. And that was one of those before and after moments in life. You know? And I remembered my father after that event consciously as kind of bitter, depressed, withdrawn. He was clinically depressed, actually, uh, and just kind of unavailable. You know? Uh, and then in this moment that I describe in the book, I got back all these memories of my father before she died, before my sister died, who was warm and loving and on the floor with us and playing and fun. And, you know, and, and some part of me said, anything that can do that to a man, no thanks, you know? Um, right. And I could then look at that as an adult, you know, and, and with that download of memories, I, I realized what had been going on, that right. th- there was a part of me scared to death of having children that I wasn't even aware of or why, why I was feeling that way. Because uh, it's, such a, it's such a risk and it can do that to someone. If ab- absolutely, yeah. that you can't have it any other way. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's, that's how it is. But it, so it is scary. You know? And you enter into a love relationship knowing that you're, that you're vulnerable, that you're taking a risk. Um, so that was my own personal example of, of a, a conflict or an ambivalence where part of it I just was not conscious of. But the guys around me could see it. You know, They couldn't quite figure it out, but they knew there was something going on there that I, I just wasn't in touch with. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it shows how... Um we don't we th- we think we have we have access to our thoughts uh, that other people don't have but sometimes other people can see us more clearly than we can see ourselves indeed indeed and and we don't have access to all of our thoughts and memories true we, 
we're very, very selective in what we can remember. Uh, and that can change with mood. It can, it can change with all kinds of things. In um, responding to ambivalence, you talk about two basic approaches, shutting down and, and resolving. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about, about, sh- yeah, about shutting down first. Well, that's what we do. That's something we can do. I mean, you can just not think about it because it's uncomfortable to think about it. In fact, that's kind of a normal pattern when you're feeling ambivalent. You think about a reason why you ought to make this change, quit smoking or whatever it is. Then you think of a reason why you don't want to do that. And then you stop thinking about it because it's kind of uncomfortable. Right. And so it, it doesn't get resolved. Now, ambivalence doesn't have to be resolved. You can live with it. You know, it, it, you can embrace it like dissonance in music and say, right. this is just a part of, this is how life is. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm going to enter into this loving relationship, I do it knowing that I'm vulnerable, knowing that, that I'm taking a risk here. But once one human style is just to shut it down and we tend to get extreme in that uh, and identify with one side of it, <laughs> say this side is the truth. The other side is not me. I don't feel that way. That's wrong. You know, and uh, Jung called it the shadow. You know, you, we kind of uh, sequester those things in a part of us that we're not conscious of. Uh, and, and just say, no, I, the, the truth is this one side of things. You know? Now, I prefer to have a leader who doesn't do that, prematurely at least, who looks at both sides of things and weighs it a bit and takes a little bit of time to decide rather than impulsively shutting down one side and just automatically going with the other. You know? So it had, had implications for leadership and parenting and just all kinds of things. But the other thing besides shutting down is then to do things to try to work through and just make a, make a decision, make a, a conscious decision, even knowing that you still are going to feel ambivalent in some ways, mm-hmm. that no, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, w- one guy I was counseling about his drinking, but uh, came in, uh, I, th- I think I mentioned this story in the book too, came in under pressure from his wife who said, I'm going to leave you and take the kids unless you do something about your drinking. And so I spent a few sessions with him and, and he was then talking about quitting drinking. And so I, I said, so, you know, you weren't too, weren't too sure about it, but as you look at it, you know, what you're thinking about is quitting drinking. Is, is that what you want to do? He said, no, but no, you know what? <laughs> and I guess I must've looked puzzled because he said, no, no, it's not what I want to do. It's what I'm going to do. Right. Ah, <laughs> we do things all the time that are the right thing to do because of the right thing to do, even though it's not particularly what we would prefer to do or want to do. So there's a lot going on in ambivalence. It's, I mean, I love researching and writing this book. And surprisingly, little has been written for the general public on ambivalence, uh, which is such a common human right. phenomenon and a, rich, right. and a rich part of life. Right. And I, I learned a lot by reading the research that's out there on ambivalence as well. I thought that uh, another great story was the uh, if you could tell our listeners those about the uh, man who was picking up his kids from the library. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a published story. Yeah, this was a smoker. I mean, dependent smoker, clearly committed smoker. Uh, and his kids are down at the public library, and he drives down to get them, and it's raining, you know? and the kids aren't out front when he gets there. 
So he kind of pulls into the curb and he's fumbling through his pockets and looking in the glove compartment and under the seat and no cigarettes. And he really wants a cigarette. And he says, you know, there's a store just around the corner. I can, I can run around there and get it. And then he turns on the engine, is ready to pull out and looks in the rearview mirror and sees his children coming out of the library into the rain and says to himself, I think I can get to the store and get back before they get too wet. And about three feet later, he was a non-smoker. You know, he said, <laughs> I'm God, I'm a man who would leave his children standing in the rain yeah. to chase a drug. Right. And that is not okay. Right. And, and that was it. For right. him. So we, we can have those moments too, that, that resolve ambivalence, particularly when something comes into conflict with something that's much more important to you. And, yeah. And it like, kind of was a gift that he had that moment. Yeah, and shared it. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. Yeah. 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 So, and there's just so much complicate. Uh, we complicate, or we. Uh, we are complicated. We are. And one of the things you talk about, I thought this was fascinating. If you have acted negatively toward or harmed someone, even unintentionally, there's a risk of denigrating or devaluing the person to diminish ambivalent guilt feelings. The Yeah. Unconscious defensive reasoning is if I was unkind, then they must have deserved it. That seemed so intuitively or viscerally true to me. Yeah. We want to explain it to ourselves. You know, if, if I was mean to that person, well, it's not because I'm a bad person, you know, they, you know, they really deserved it in some way. So you begin talking to yourself about that. Uh, and in the process, get meaner to with that, to, toward that person. <laughs> Fortunately, it works the other way, too. Uh, that if, if you're kind of ambivalent about somebody and you do something kind for them, you tend to move in the direction of relationship, you know? Uh, and, and so we, we watch ourselves, we listen to ourselves talk and learn what we believe that way. You know? We also watch ourselves behave and make decisions about what's happening based on what we do. And, and we're pretty kind to ourselves and you know, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt typically. Uh, so that that kind of explaining of behavior that may have happened for a completely different reason right. and be, become self-perpetuating. This binary thinking, this trap of binary thinking, um, mm -hmm. there was one at one point you thought that there was maybe I uh, didn't look up the reference, but that there was maybe some hope that we were as a human race moving beyond that or past that doesn't seem that way looking at the news, but um, do you remember that, that site? I think it was to Wilbur. Oh, Ken Wilbur. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, to say that is an act of faith, I think, I mean, you can, you can look at the sweep of centuries and say, I mean, in general, I gotcha. You know, we've, we've gotten more humane to each other uh, over time. I see. But we go through periods where you say, oh, really? Have we? <laughs> and, and you can be an optimist or a pessimist. I'm, I'm a pathological optimist, you know? Um, and it makes a difference because your beliefs tend to come true, you know? Now, maybe not at a societal level, but at least in relation to the people that, that you care about and people around you. Uh, we, we tend to act in a way that makes our beliefs come true. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and so if you have a choice to be optimistic or pessimistic, 
Uh, you know, why not choose optimism? Well, if, if not being disappointed is a terribly, terribly important thing for you, then maybe you want to be the pessimist, you know, so you're never disappointed. Right. It's a Woody uh, Allen kind of. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, you know, I, for myself, life makes more sense. And uh, I think my relationships with others make more sense if I give the benefit of the doubt and, uh, and expect the best of people. And uh, you can, in the process, bring out the best in people. The fake it till you make it. It's just yeah. such a, I don't know if that originated in AA, but it's just such a great um, slogan. You certainly hear it there. It's, yeah, you do. It's, it's an older idea of living as if, you know, if you're, if you're not yet where you want to be, live as, live as if you are. You know, if, you're, if you're not yet as compassionate a person as you wish you were, be compassionate, you know, and you, you act yourself into character in the process. Yeah. I was, you, you talk about how you've been researching ambivalence forever, but, and you, you have experience with it even beyond as long much, as you've been. Much longer than that, yes. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that after, you say, after being tenured as a psychology professor, a vivid experience prompted me to wonder whether I had taken the wrong road and should resign my faculty oh, yes. to go to seminary. It was it was kind of a mystical experience, actually. I mean, I was I was off on a, a re, basically a personal retreat or a pilgrimage of kind, and and just had an unexplainable logically um, experience. And then I had to say, well, what now? What does that mean? You know, I mean, here, you know, here I am, tenured. I got a career going. I did decide way back that not to go to seminary, you know, and not to follow the path that I thought I was following from a child, from being a child, and just kind of went. Maybe, maybe I took the wrong turn back there, and instead of shutting it down, I was open to it, you know, and and considered, asked people for advice about it, had conversations about it. Um, and ironically, the seminary professors and pastors I talked to said, you have, a, you have an important ministry where you are right now, yeah, right. which is kind of what I was not accepting at the time. And it, it just helped me to say, no, no, it, you're on the right path. It's okay. You know, but I really went through, you know, sometime when I was coming back from the retreat, I thought, how am I going to tell my wife that, you know, <laughs> by the way, I'm thinking about going back to seminary. Uh, and I told her, and she said, well, if that's what God wants, we can do that. And my immediate reaction was, damn it, I was counting on you to tell me I'm out of my mind, you know. Uh, but I had to work. She was practicing motivation. She was, she was practicing she, good motivational interviewing. By, by, by no accident, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even before it was invented. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, um, Towards the end, you say ambivalence is not always best resolved. A long-standing right. tension for me is keeping work in balance with relationships and other life values. So that I thought that was a really uh, important point. Yeah, well, it certainly has been for me because uh, your you work will expand to fill whatever space you give it. You know, uh, and and for me at least, it's fun. Also, man, I, I'm privileged to love the work that I had to do. 
uh, and could easily do more and more and more and more of it uh, and let the rest of my life go. And not, not just relationships, but you know, other things that give my life meaning as well. And so keeping that in balance has been uh, an important thing for me and kind of constant. And I don't know if I said this in a book, but a, but a colleague once told me, you know, you just need to enjoy living on the edge. You did, or running yeah. along the edge, I think. Running, running along the edge, yeah. yes. And, and, uh, and the view, enjoy the view, running on the edge of the cliff. Mm -hmm. And don't get too close, you know, but that's it, just kind of where, where you are as a person. Right. Keeping intention that, uh, that both of those things matter to you. Right. And keeping a balance. I, uh, unfortunately, we're, we are out of time, but I wanted to ask one last question, which was, um, I wondered what, uh, the, you dedicated the book in loving memory of Professor Hal Arkowitz, which I, uh, I noticed was also your master's uh, thesis. Um, was, yeah. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about that, your relationship with, with him or... Oh, I mean, Hal, Hal was just was such a, a loving man. I mean, this this is a guy who would put on a gorilla suit to three his, thrill his children, you know, and, uh, you know, so he wasn't locked into his professional image of a psychologist. Uh, and, you know, when I entered graduate school, I didn't know anything basically about psychology. He was very patient with that. He had invited me to consider things, but uh, wanted me to do research on what I, what I cared about you know, not, not do following his footsteps necessarily. So he showed me that kind of mentoring freedom of, of inspiring and not imposing, you know, and, and love, love is just never imposed. It's just offered, you know? Mm. Um, and he also was very interested in ambivalence and has a book about it. Um, that's, that's worth reading as well. Um, and, and Later in his life, he came back and got training in motivational interviewing, which, which was <laughs> a, great. It was a full circle for me, you know. And now I'm mentoring my mentor. You know, it's great. Uh, and we just we had a lovely relationship over the years. And he died just a couple of years ago. And uh, I gotcha. But this is this is the one I wanted to dedicate the book to. Great, Professor Miller. Thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very, I really you're appreciate very, it. Very welcome. Thank you.